Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we'll be talking with an immigration law expert about the controversy over family separation and detention. My reporters, Michelle Rendells and Luce Gray, are here with questions. Managing editor Elizabeth Thompson is on vacation, so no one will be here to counter my opinions. Who am I to complain? A reminder, if you like us, rate us on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher. Tell your friends, even tell your enemies. Tell people you see on the street. We appreciate you. So let's get started with my recap of some of the week's headlines from the Nevada Independent. We took last week off to recover from the elections, but the elections are not really over. The team reported that a few dozen double votes will require a do-over in one race. That's the one for public administrator in Clark County on the Republican side. What's a public administrator? That's the person who presides over the estates of those who have not designated anyone to manage them. It's a pretty important job. Speaking of managing, let's hope this kind of error does not repeat itself in November when much more will be at stake. Another election isn't quite over yet, either in that Clark County Commission contest it's headed for a recount that's a Democratic primary. Recounts never change much. They are machines, after all. But State Senator Tick Segerblum's 181-vote win over a laborers' union candidate backed by his union and Sheldon Adelson is up in the air until next week. Nothing will change much except Republican Lieutenant Governor Mark Hutchison's law firm, which made the request for the recount, will make a little money. The Indy's Daniel Rothberg is in Reno, but that didn't stop our environmental expert from following the progress of a new Clark County lands proposal being forwarded to the feds. has a lot of supporters, but also some detractors, including an unusual alliance between off-road racers and some, but not all, enviros. This is just the beginning of a long process, and Daniel will be on it, wherever he happens to be. Our energy maven, Riley Snyder, posted a piece explaining what could happen if the Energy Choice Initiative passes. No one understands this stuff as Riley does, and he managed to put every aspect of it in layman's terms. You should check it out. No single item on the ballot will affect your life more. And speaking of ballot measures, the team did what the Indy does best, produced a comprehensive list of all of the ballot measures that attempted to qualify and explained what they would do. They also mentioned two that never had a chance. State Senator Michael Roberson never raised any money, really, to try to pass his anti-so-called sanctuary cities proposal, but he got what he wanted, free media for his campaign for lieutenant governor. And controller Ron Connect once again showed that he both has no control over his own ego and no control over anything he tries to accomplish. His second try to repeal the commerce tax went nowhere. Finally, Riley discovered quite the audit this week, one that shows state boards are not abiding by a directive and some are not abiding by a state law on how much they can pay staffers. Even the normally even-keeled Brian Sandoval was upset. And I don't think it had anything to do with some of these staffers making more money than he does. One note about this weekend in the Indy. Be sure to check out the site Sunday for the beginning of our exclusive five-part series on what really goes on in Clark County schools. One of our reporters, Jackie Valley, spent months at a local elementary school, and what she found was eye-opening. It all starts Sunday. We'll be back in a moment on Indy Matters with Michael Kagan. We're back on Indie Matters, the podcast of Nevada Independent with Michael Kagan. 
He runs the immigration clinic at UNLV, and he's an expert on the tension between immigration law and civil rights. He joins us by phone. Welcome to Any Matters, Professor. Thanks for having me. I'm going to let uh, uh, Michelle uh, and and Luce ask most of the questions, but I just want to just start off maybe just getting your general reaction. I've seen your relatively active Twitter account and some of your uh, <laughs> comments on what's been going on, but generally, what has been your reaction to this controversy? Yeah, and I, I am supposed to be on vacation, so I probably should be less active than I am, but I think that's a reflection of, of what this is like. Uh, my email for, you know, for the last year and a half seems like it's had one new... Uh, measure of harshness uh, a day at least, but it does feel like this was somehow really significant, some kind of red line was crossed in terms of values that I think in the past we thought were fairly universal in the, in the U.S. in terms of valuing kids and families, and also the, the commitment to the idea that the U.S. is a country that offers hope to people fleeing from violence and persecution around the world, and both of those lines now seem to have been really crossed in a really chaotic way, and it's not clear whether there might be some kids who grow up and the scars may never heal from it. Well, a lot of these kids still have not been, the 2,000-plus the, the have not been reunited with their parents. There, there's no evidence that I saw, I may have missed it today, that the administration is even trying uh, to track them. And, and, and it's interesting that you, men- that you mentioned that maybe a red line was crossed. Do you really think so uh, in this case? And if so, why? So we could get into, you know, the, some of the technicalities of, of exactly what they've been trying to do. Um, that the red line really isn't a legal one so much as it is one of values, that the possibility of separating kids from their parents has always been understood and that both the Obama and Bush administrations even thought about it. But they both, and that was a Republican administration and a Democratic administration, they both thought about it and decided this is just something we can't do, that the public will never accept it and and it's, it's a bridge too far for us. The fact that it's been done uh, now, even if they take a step back from some aspects of it, means that it's not unprecedented anymore. And I think we, uh, and so other forms of, of cruelty might somehow seem relatively more acceptable. And I think we've seen this actually. I've been a little bit both confused and disturbed by news coverage in the, the last in the last 24 hours because essentially that with the new executive order, it seems like what the president has done is separate some degree of family separation for indefinite family detention, and that is being you know many national news outlets are covering that as sort of a major reversal and. Instead, it's really separating from a family's perspective, from a child's perspective, one bad or another bad thing. Um, and that's why it's sort of that crossing those value lines is, is why I feel that, that some kind of, of milestone's been passed here, and I don't think it's a good one. I'm going to let Michelle start, start off now, but, 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 but you mentioned earlier about uh, not getting into some of the technicalities. Hey, that's part of the reason we have you here. Uh, you're well, the legal I'm expert. Delay them. Yeah, okay, we can de- <laughs> we can delay them a bit, but I do want you to uh, I do want you to talk a little bit about. I'm going to let Michelle jump in here and and then loose, but uh, talk about some of the legalities that some people might not see that are evident here. Go ahead, Michelle. Sure. Yeah. So. Um Talk about the deficiencies that you you seem to be expressing about this executive order. It's it's replacing uh, one 
issue we have with with another one, and you're talking about the indefinite um, right. family detention. Uh, talk a little bit more about how that that is a new practice. If you don't mind, and I'm not trying to avoid that question, if I could just back up one step and do it, I will try to explain what exactly they were doing so that we can understand what the executive order might have changed. So the background for this is that we've had a major, a significant migration of people from Central America, and primarily young people from three countries, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, um, fleeing from mainly from really extreme, atrocious levels of gang violence. It's been going on for several years, um, and it particularly affects children. And actually, at our clinic at UNLV, we have the, the Edward Bernstein uh, and Associates Children's Rights Program, where we represent unaccompanied children. Now, some of these children arrive with their parents or with some kind of caregiver who are with them through the entire migration and some of the children do the migration entirely alone, which is especially frightening. So there's long been a system for unaccompanied children. And that's actually who uh, most of our clients are. But there, are, um, there was typically a different system, uh, although it's gone through different phases, going back to the Obama era, for kids who arrived with their parents. And the typical system is that they would usually apply for asylum, and if they pass what's called a credible fear interview, they'd often be allowed to apply for bond or be released while they uh, went through the asylum application process. Because people arrived with uh, their children and would be allowed out uh, while their asylum cases were being processed, that meant the children did not have to be detained. Now, what the, what the Trump administration started to do was to prosecute all of the, uh, or almost all of the adults who were crossing and to take those adults into custody for that prosecution. And that's only for a misdemeanor. And it's actually a misdemeanor that can be sentenced with a $250 fine. But they were still taking the parents into custody. That meant that the children were alone. So essentially they took children who actually came with their parents and turned them into orphans. They turned them into unaccompanied children. And there's actually a great deal of concern that they did it in such a haphazard top manner that they may not even have the record straight to be able to reunify them later. So what happened with the executive order yesterday, it seems, and, and honestly, this is evolving hour to hour. By the time you actually release this podcast, we might have more information. It seems that they are going back to not prosecuting all of the parents and wanting to leave them in detention with their kids. But that would leave kids essentially in prison and indefinitely because it takes a very long time for an asylum case or any immigration case in the courts generally to be resolved because of the tremendous backlog. So that's a really long-winded answer. I hope I got back to your original question but uh, uh, about where I think we are right now, but 
he really is evolving hour to hour with really sketchy information coming from the government. Mm-hmm. Michelle, let me let me let you go on, but this, since he brought it up, I just want to remind everybody that we are recording this on Thursday afternoon, and he's right. There was reports this morning of maybe 17 uh, people being in federal court and then not not being prosecuted at all. We don't know what 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 is going to happen between now and probably either late Friday or early Saturday when this podcast posts. Just so our audience knows. Professor Kagan, last time we talked to to one of your um, staff members, Laura Barrera, um, she mm-hmm. was talking about how some of this did happen during the Obama administration, at least with the fathers. Right. Um, mm-hmm. What what of these practices were going on prior to this situation? Yeah, um, so there's been uh, both there was official policies, and there also were informal practices that uh, continued right up to this most recent crisis, the Obama administration did respond very harshly to the upsurge in Central American kids arriving back in 2013, 2014. Uh, in fact, our program was very much born as a response to that. And um, the, the Obama administration tried family detention as a deterrent to send a message to people not to come. That was blocked in the courts uh, for a couple different reasons. Um, one reason is that the federal judges were uncomfortable with the idea of deterrence as a rationale for what's supposed to be civil detention. This is not actually usually not criminal detention. Um, and also there's something known as the Flores Settlement, which goes back many, many years to a previous wave of Central American migration, where uh, essentially the federal government agreed that unaccompanied children uh, and children in general would not be left uh, in detention usually for more than 20 days. And so uh, that the Obama administration actually tried fam- indefinite family detention and found that the courts wouldn't have it. It looks like, as of yesterday, the Trump administration may be moving back to try again with something that the Obama administration did, which Trump said wasn't harsh enough, but which federal judges essentially said was too harsh to children. You talked about the deterrent uh, intent of this policy. Is there any evidence that there are fewer people initiating that dangerous journey, you know, across Mexico from Central America um, or, or hanging out, you know, by the border and not opting to cross over because of the potential being separated? I have not seen any. Uh, there's typically a lag in getting migration statistics, and there's a pretty long history showing that you really can't look at uh, immigration border crossing statistics on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis and read much into it because it's affected by so many things. Generally speaking, actually, the amount of border crossing on the Mexican border right now is not especially high by historical standards, and that's because Mexicans actually are not coming in very large numbers any longer. Um, But what's happening is that people who are crossing are are fleeing from violence, and so they actually have probably stronger legal claims and moral claims about why they need to come to the U.S. than, say, um, a typical Mexican... uh, worker who might have been crossing 10 years ago. Uh, so that's the, uh, that, that is part of the backdrop for this, for this current crisis, and I think part of why the Trump administration 
seems to both want to change the legal rules and also maybe push the moral boundary. The policy, they call it catch and release. Uh, I, I guess yeah. maybe that's pejorative. Um, I mean, do we know if that was effective in terms of are, were people likely to show up for their court dates if they were, you know, right. released from the border and, and let to go live with, with family members? Really good question. And there has been a lot of dispute about this, and there are different numbers. Numbers I've seen on this tend to show that people who got lawyers to help them with their asylum applications in immigration court reported to court at a rate over 95%, which is extremely good. But that there were a number of, a lot, large percentage, I don't have it offhand, but a large percentage who didn't appear, typically people who did not have lawyers. Uh, and uh, there are probably a lot of explanations for why that may be happening, but that is one of the government's arguments for wanting to detain people. But there are also a lot of alternatives that DHS has spent a lot of money uh, using, like um, releasing people with ankle bracelets. Uh, there are a lot of other means to, to keep track of someone while their cases are pending that don't require uh, putting them behind bars um, that, that have been very successful. Um, but we definitely see that when people get a lawyer and, and feel that they have a fair shot at the process and also have someone who can help explain it to them, um, uh, they show up to court. I mean, we, we don't typically have much problem with our clients showing up to court other than the difficulty that I, you have with any teenager getting them to show up anywhere. But, I mean, basically, our um, uh, people who get lawyers show up. There are issues, statistically at least, with people who don't have lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, President Trump had a, one of many tweets this morning. Um, he said uh, yeah. that, you know, he doesn't want there to be, I, I think he referred to them as thousands of judges um, sent to, to address the situation. And instead, we needed to be putting, hiring more ICE agents and more Border Patrol agents. Um, and then he said something about... Um, People are using a, a password or a passphrase, get out of jail, free card or something, you know, to that effect. Um, first of all, can you address what this uh, situation about the judges is? And, I mean, are you having to ramp up the kind of civil legal system um, as a result of, of some of the policies that are alternatives to what we were seeing with the Trump administration? Yes. Uh, well, look, uh, I the most charitable thing that one could say about saying that we just need more Border Patrol officers and not judges is that it reflects a lack of sophistication. A more, dis, uh, a more disturbing way of understanding it is that the president is not committed to rule of law. Because uh, in a democracy, when you arrest people, even you arrest, if you arrest someone to, uh, for being a serial killer, you still send them to a court. And uh, when the police arrest more people, you do need more court space. So, uh, and people are entitled to a hearing. So, and, and frankly, actually, this is why uh, I, I think that many of the Trump policies that are very harsh and inflict a great deal of cruelty and suffering on immigrants, they don't, they aren't necessarily the smartest way to be more restrictive about immigration because he's just tended to backlog the system and does, he has not seemed to understand that you, that this is a very complicated machine. You can't just have more uniformed people. You also have to have more lawyers and judges uh, if you want to be consistent with American values about treating everyone fairly and everyone having a right to be heard. That's one thing that I could say about that. 
There's something else about the way the Trump administration officials talk about immigration law that's, I think, uh, alarming. Um, they talk about strict enforcement, but it's important to understand that immigration law is pretty unwieldy beast, and it's not the best drafted piece of our legislation, but it does embody many values that are in, in tension with each other. One certainly is control over who can cross the border, but another is protection for people fleeing violence. We have a very long humanitarian tradition in our immigration system. That's also part of the law. So what happens with the Trump administration is that anything that would allow someone to stay, they call a loophole. And anything that would let them detain someone or deport someone, they say that we have to enforce without exceptions. We talked about this with Attorney Barrera uh, last time, but but you bring it up uh, that that people do have a, a legal right to petition for asylum. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that other part of the Trump tweet that I brought up was, was he said people are using, you know, keywords to get into the country. And, and I guess probably he's referring to establishing credible fear. Um, yeah. Can you give us a little bit of background on what uh, those rights are and whether um, whether there are passwords or keywords that people can say? Yeah, there, there are no passwords. <laughs> I can't. Uh, it's called the Credible Fear Interview. Um, This is done, you you don't even have a a lawyer in this process. Uh, It's done by uh, an immigration officer to decide whether you should be able to go into the regular asylum system. Um, And uh, what they, uh, uh, the way that works is that you get interviewed by an asylum officer and explain why you are afraid to go um, uh, um, home. There's a lot of legal complexity in the asylum system. So a lot of people don't understand that it's not enough to convince the U.S. government that I would be killed or I would be raped. You have to convince the government that you would be killed or raped for the right reason. Credible fear process is not supposed to adjudicate all the legal complexities in that. Uh, there's tons of fighting in federal courts about that, and there will be for many more years, about some of the legal nuances. It's supposed to just screen out frivolous cases uh, and or very likely frauds. So there aren't passwords. You just have to, but, but it, it is supposed to be just the initial screen. It's not the final adjudication. Professor, um, we were talking about how things in terms of immigration policy seem to be changing by the hour, not even... Every day, you know, how, how do you keep up with all these changes and how the public can understand all these changes as well, like follow up? And that will be one question. And I have uh, another uh, couple of questions in regards of uh, the asylum process when the families get to the border. And then with this executive order, what changed? Because the kids and the families or the parents, uh, how long are, are they going to have to wait for their process to uh, take effect, like days or months? What's going to happen with them, with this new executive order? Okay, so that's, that's two different questions. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I, uh, I keep up with these changes, some of it's through Twitter, frankly, not just, by the way, that the president's tweets are colorful, but not usually the most informative. <laughs> um, I, I'm on a lot of listservs, you know, of other immigration law professors and people who have 
time to follow every decision that comes out, and I try to scan them. Um, and honestly, I mean, for a while now, there's been some kind of important decision. It feels like every day. It really does. Uh, and they're, they're almost always bad um, uh, for, uh, for the people and for the kids that we represent. How can the public keep track of this? But it's really hard. Um, there are a lot of really good organizations that put out guides on key issues. Um, you know, the National Immigrant Law Center, for example, has some really good guides on the latest about DACA, for example, that I refer people to. Uh, you know, we don't, in the UNLV Immigration Clinic, we typically don't have the time to write those things up. There are so many complexities to immigration law, it's hard to distill things and capture all the exceptions that might apply. So I, I wish I knew where people could, could go to keep track of these things, and I think it's hard for journalists, too, and, and I get uh, uh, to, to follow what's going on and figure out, is this really a full reversal of a policy? Is it just a maneuver? Is it a shift? And, and if I could bring up a, an even bigger issue, the government right now doesn't give clear information. And so the White House or the Department of Homeland Security is saying one thing, and journalists will find a confirmed case. That's the opposite. And so we're at a stage where it's becoming difficult to rely on government statements. Um, one of the things you bring up, the the difficulty of getting good information from the government. Um, Dina Titus put out a, a statement today. Uh, she's asking Alex Azar of HHS to uh, tell, are there any children in Nevada? Um, you know, I talked to Governor Sandoval and he said he wasn't aware um, Catholic Charities, which does refugee things, said they were not, uh, they hadn't received any children. But do we know for sure? And, you know, in your capacity, um, can you tr- can you usually track uh, when kids are, are being sent to Nevada? I can only tell you that we haven't gotten any notice of any, uh, but I, but that doesn't mean that we necessarily would. I can tell you that we have gotten phone calls from adults in Nevada detention centers who say uh, to us on the phone that they crossed with their children and that their children were taken from them and they don't know where their children are. We have a staff of two and a half, really, of two and a half lawyers, so it's very difficult for us to get to all the detention centers. Uh, one of them is in Pahrump, essentially, for uh, Laura Barrera or Myra Salinas, so, you know, take a full day of work for them to go visit someone there. So that's part of the burdens of trying to keep track of this. So I can tell you we've gotten calls from adults who say that they are parents whose children were taken from them, but I, I don't know of any of the children in Nevada. Obviously, we represent a lot of unaccompanied kids who came without parents to begin with, but we have many of those in Nevada. But on the other hand, other states are just learning from news reports. Uh, New York City, I think, just found out that several hundred kids are in New York. New York didn't know that. I mean, that, so for all I know, by this weekend, we might know that in Nevada, but I just don't know. We talked about this new um, attempt to, to try family detention again. Um, what mm-hmm. issues do you see with carrying that out on a large scale? Kids don't belong behind bars is probably the biggest. Or I mean, some of these kids are teenagers. 
some of them are babies. Some of them are in elementary school. Um, they should be living in. I mean, it's, they should be living in homes and uh, going to school. And uh, it's just no place to grow up. And uh, I think if you look historically and around the world, countries that lock up families with kids behind bars, we don't usually think of those as humane democracies. And so it's a disturbing thing to do. That's why uh, with the Flores settlement, uh, there's a limit on, on child detention. Um, if I could add one other thing, actually, about lack of clarity about what's going on, I'll give you another example. Um, uh, the, the government has been saying that they were applying, they were, that they were taking children away only from parents who crossed the border uh, illegally, that is, between ports of entry. But there have been confirmed cases of people who applied for asylum at ports of entry, which is entirely legal, and still had children taken away from them. This is particularly, seems to be particularly true with fathers. So this has been going on for a while. This isn't just the last month or two that fathers who crossed with their kids often had their kids taken away. The government seemed to suspect that they weren't, uh, that, they, that they might not be the genuine parents. At least that's one explanation for it. But there's been cases where people carry their original birth certificates with and uh, still had their children taken away from them. Uh, and that does not comply with any of the official statements that the Trump administration has put out. So, again, that's a situation where the practice has actually been there for a while. What we see now seems to be just a, an acceleration of a phenomenon that's been going on for a while unofficially. There's been talk of the Flores settlement, the one that prevents the detention of children for more than 20 days. Uh, have you been hearing about efforts to somehow challenge that or do something different with the Flores settlement? Sure. Uh, the, the, the president yesterday, uh, part of the executive order was uh, asking the Department of Justice, ordering the Department of Justice to ask a federal court in California to revise the Flores settlement. That seems to be uh, an acknowledgement that what uh, he put into the executive order uh, is not in compliance, uh, and that if the Florida settlement isn't changed, then uh, probably what was announced yesterday can't stand. So uh, I mean, it'll be up to a judge to decide what to do about that, uh, but the Obama administration actually tried this before, so uh, I don't know how they'll explain whether anything is new. Let me just jump in here, uh, um, ladies, because we only have a couple minutes left, and I just want to get into a couple of quick things here with you, Professor. Since Michelle brought it up, the, the Flores settlement goes back to 1997, I believe, and we keep calling right. it a settlement, but it's it's actually it was a consent decree, right? And so right. it doesn't have any force of law, technically, does it? Uh, no, it does. Uh, in fact, there's been a lot of subsequent litigation. So it was a consent decree because the government agreed to it, and signed off on it, but what happens that's not unique to to um, this kind of litigation is that the settlement was entered as an order of the court, and so it's enforceable like any other court order. So actually what happened with in, during the Obama uh, presidency in 2016 was that uh, courts found that his policies violated the Flores um, consent decree, and uh, because it, that is a court order, Federal court retains jurisdiction to I enforce see. it. I see. Okay. So uh, a couple other quick things because the, you've talked about this lack of clarity and, and, and 
uh, the, the humanity that you bring to this issue is, is, is evident uh, in your Twitter feed. And I saw just one exchange yesterday I want to share uh, with our listeners. A pretty well-known conservative writer, uh, Byron York, uh, put out said, if it happens, this is before the executive order, good chance it will stop, be stopped by a lawsuit from the same groups that are today protesting separations, referring to, I believe, the Flores settlement and, and the family detention. Mm-hmm. And you respond that this is absolutely right. Because the argument is that children shouldn't be locked in warehouses and should not be made into orphans. For a useful exploration of these concepts, see Inter Alia, the literary work of Charles Dickens. Wow. Yeah, did I write that? That seems inflammatory. Um, it, it is inflammatory, uh, and that's why I'm wondering, were you angry when you wrote this? Were you, were you saying to yourself, I can't believe people don't see that we are going back to the kind of world that was painted by Dickens, that this is a Dickensian way to deal with uh, the, these children? Or, or is that yeah. hyperbole for a point, to make a point? I, no, it's, I, I actually, I, 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 uh, I was angry, and, I'm, and I, I'll stand by it, because uh, that is, I, I, when I talked at the beginning of this conversation about moral red lines being crossed, this is what I'm talking about. Um, because I think family separation became the, the buzzword, uh, because of these you know, awful scenes and the, uh, that audio tape of kids wailing out for their parents and, and also for the parents. I'm a dad. I've got two daughters uh, and uh, parents crying for their kids, and I think that resonated with everyone. It, it, Underlines the basic humanity that we all share uh, that seems to be being denied by our government. And because family separation had become the buzzword, it seems as if what the president said was, well, okay, fine, I'll let them all be together, but they'll be together behind bars. And that just gets us to, you know, a situation of children being locked up. Um, you know, and we've all seen pictures of that. And yes, some of those pictures are from the Obama era, which really wasn't that long ago, and some are from the Trump era. But uh, the idea that children and families, you know, whose worst offense is a misdemeanor, and that would be only applicable to the adults anyway, um, are locked up, and no one knows when they'll be released. Uh, you know, I don't think, you know, when, my, when I was in elementary school, I don't know that, that my teachers, you know, teaching me about what this country was about, thought that that was something possible here. Uh, and certainly when, you know, when I read Dickens, it was this exotic, cruel, dark world and kind of hell where children could be placed in, in that kind of institution. Uh, but it's not, doesn't seem so exotic now, does it? I mean, it, it's a lot easier to imagine uh, how, it, how it can happen. It actually sounds like Oliver Twist had a, had a dream childhood compared to what some of these kids are having to endure now. Professor, we we are out of time. I know you are on uh, vacation. I can't tell you how much uh, I appreciate uh, you taking the time. If people don't know anything about the immigration uh, clinic at UNLV, you do the Lord's work every day and and, and you need a lot more support. Thanks for coming on. This is a very complicated issue uh, and we hope to have both you and and Laura back at at some point. So thanks again for joining us on Indie Matters. Thank you for having me. All right. Michelle and Luz, thanks for coming and asking those Questions, that's all the time we do have uh, today for Indie Matters. Reminder that our interviews are also available on KUNV, that's University's radio station, 8.30 p.m. every Thursday. We love partnering uh, with UNLV on all kinds of things here at the Indie. Uh, we want to know what you think about this podcast. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, 
email us at ideas at the nvnd.com. That's ideas at the nvnd.com. Check out the site if you haven't already, nevadaindependent.com. And also rate us on iTunes and subscribe. You can go on Google Play and Stitcher, as I already told you. I also want to thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And as always, many thanks to our fantastic producer, Joey Lovato, who makes us all sound, ladies. Podcast smooth. Come on, Luce. Podcast smooth. Oh, Luce <laughs> may have the best podcast smooth yet. I am, I am very, very impressed. Thanks again uh, for being here to both of you. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week.